I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and through to verse 29. So if you want to read with me, it would be great. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Who's the they? This is Jesus, James, Peter, and John. And, uh, and they, they had just come down from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Remember last week? Jesus was transfigured. They wanted to set up some monuments and tents to uh, try to you know, keep Jesus or the glory of God in a particular place. And, um, <clears throat> and they're coming back down the mountain. Jesus is saying, basically, don't go and tell anyone about what you've seen. Just wait. There's going to be a time where it's all going to make sense. And uh, they come now to the disciples, the other disciples, and... Here ensues the story. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I, commanded you, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can only, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But prayer. Isn't this interesting? Uh, this, this whole little passage here, I find it very interesting. We're going to invite you. Can you uh, have another skim over that? What were the things, what's one thing that particularly just jumped out at you um, about that particular section of Scripture? And can you share it with a person around you? Go. About 30 seconds. Uh, what jumped out at you about this particular section?
All right, can anyone throw in? What was one thing in particular that stood out to you in that, uh, this little section of the story? Yeah, why, why did that stand out to you? Has it? Hmm. Yep. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Any others? Yeah, that's intriguing, isn't it? Yep. Yep. That's a good question. Yep. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. There's other, I'm not sure if it's other versions or other, um, like in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 17, it has a similar um, a similar uh, story. So yeah, that, that's right. There was prayer and fasting in other, in other versions that it talked about. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yep, yep. Doesn't it intrigue you? Like this is, this is just amazing stuff. And I hope that as you read it, you actually get drawn into the story a bit. That that you uh, imagine like you were actually there, uh, and and you see what's going on here and how absolutely incredible it is. I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions today. Um, and I, you know, there's bits that I'll be skipping over. But I'm going to draw your attention in particular um, to. Four things. Firstly, the faithful critics. Uh, secondly, the undulating faithful father. Thirdly, the faithless faithful. And fourthly, the lifeblood of faith. Uh, they're the four areas that I'm uh, particularly going to f- focus on. I've called it Jesus and the faithless faithful. All right. Um, what struck me, what, what stood out to me is uh, that rebuke in the middle. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I couldn't, and as I read it straight up, I was like, well, that seems weird. Like, is this just like a selfish dad who's just frustrated because his kids aren't getting the message over and over and over again? Um, that doesn't seem to line up with Jesus' character <laughs> um, because that would be just self-centered uh, because that dad is really only thinking about himself. Um, my, my question, uh, and part of what comes out of later, uh, will come from that question there. Um, my second question was, who was he talking to? Who is the faithless generation? Um, is it the argumentative scribes? Because they seem pretty faithless uh, when you actually come to an understanding of what faith looks like. Um, was it the failed disciples? Because there's an element of their faithlessness because they couldn't cast out the demon, right? Um, and they were having a good old... Were, people were attacking them. Um, was it the grieving father? Because there was a faithlessness about him too, wasn't there? Uh, because he sort of came sort of half having faith but half questioning Jesus and his ability to actually uh, heal his son. Uh, Some, as I said, would view the rebuke as a stern, angry father who's annoyed that he has to keep telling his children the same thing over and over. 
However, as I said, this would be self-centered, self-focused taunt that would turn people away, I think. If it was that sort of rebuke, wouldn't the people feel squashed and be like, yeah, yep, there's not much we can do. Faithless. That's a pretty harsh thing. But instead, what you see is the dad actually comes near Jesus, doesn't he? Uh, Straight after his rebuke, he doesn't turn away going, yep, that's me, I'm done. Uh, He actually draws near to Jesus. And so you get a sense that this isn't the angry father sternly rebuking his children. This is more like a faithful friend who says, there's something good here that you're missing and I want you to get it. And so people are more drawn to Jesus than they are pushed away. I had a, uh, we were in Brisbane on Friday and we got to walk around the, um, the markets at South Bank and we came to the one particular busker and um, this guy was absolutely phenomenal. He sat there on his little stool thing uh, in fact, I think it was a box like this. And, um, <clears throat> and he started playing his lap guitar um, and he had a little metal ring on his finger so he slid it up and down. It's really sweet, sort of smooth sounds. Uh, and then, then as he started playing his lap guitar, he pulled out his harmonica and his, his harmonica had his headset thing and so he'd just start playing the harmonica at the same time. And as he was going, then he'd actually start doing the kick, kick drum with his left foot. And so you get this nice rhythm going on at the, at the same time. And then with his right foot, he'd actually get, uh, he had some sort of snare sound with a tambourine sort of thing. And so he'd have the snare going with his other foot. So, so far, he's got his left hand going, his left foot, his right foot, and his harmonica. So he's getting all the notes right on his harmonica. And then he starts shaking this shaker in his hand. And for whatever reason, I really don't get yet, uh, he had to keep entertaining people as if that wasn't entertaining enough. And he started juggling this ball in his hand as well. <laughs> All of what he's doing, all this stuff, I'm going, you are kidding. That's insane. Um, I wish I could play like that one day. Uh, but I, I was thinking about it as, as I was stewing over this stuff in Mark. Uh, I was thinking about the whole idea of a one-man band. He doesn't want to rely on any other instrument. He just wants to do all the stuff himself. Um, and, and he really literally is, is this one-man band. And you get the sense that when Jesus is actually talking to the people here, uh, he's invited them not to be a one-man band. He's actually inviting them to be, uh, be connected uh, with someone more incredible, more powerful than themselves. And so here goes the story. The faithful critics. Isn't it true that when, whenever someone acts in faith, that whenever someone goes and does, takes a risk that could fail, could quite easily fail, but that could also be successful, there's going to be critics somewhere around the corner. There's always going to be someone to try and find a, a hole in whatever they've done, um, particularly when they've failed, particularly when it's all fallen apart. And, uh, and, and they just, the critics are there. They're ready to pull it apart and tear them down. don't know if you've experienced that before. Um, I, I've experienced it a little bit. Um, and I've also been my own worst critic and criticised myself and whatever I've done trying to follow the Lord in faith. Um, the scribes in this particular story, the scribes of the Jewish faithful who preserve scriptures by rewriting them. And to some of you might already know this, as I was looking it up, so the scribes were the guys who had the Old Testament and they maintained those scriptures and kept those scriptures all the way through. Um, so they, in rewriting them, they'd literally count every letter and every space between each word to make sure that it was absolutely faithful and precise, which we can actually thank them for because ultimately that's where we've um, been able to take our scriptures from. Um, but 
that, that personality had an obvious particular bent to everything having to be neat and tidy and perfect. And so they carried that on into the way that they actually presented themselves in being able to keep the law that they wrote about and kept. Um, but that also carried over to adding to the law um, and, and pushing the, these added laws onto the people around them, saying this is what being religious looks like. You have to keep all the rules and keep all the laws, and that is what a faithful person looks like. Uh, Jesus comes along and blows that out of the water because he comes for the people who don't have it all together. He comes for the sick. He comes for the people who are messed up. And uh, the scribes don't like him, nor do they not like the disciples who Jesus sends out and says, you guys have the power to cast out demons. You guys have the power to, uh, to uh, heal. And, uh, and so the scribes are looking for any way possible to tear these guys down. Um, they're trying to live out their faith and act in faith. Uh, the scribes come and try to tear them down. Uh, the interesting thing is that if they were who they said they were, the scribes, why didn't they come and cast the demon out themselves? They were standing there watching it all happen. They watched the disciples fail. If they had this little boy's interest at the, at the center, then they could have come out just as much as the disciples could have, knowing that they knew the Lord, knowing that they knew God, apparently. Um, they could have come and cast it out themselves, but they didn't. Why? Because I think there was this central attribute, this central idea uh, of pride and envy going on in them. A critic aims at separating themselves from those who are faithful by finding fault and tearing them down in an attempt to upstage themselves and appear to be the better person. Do you ever find that? Uh, I mean, anyone who has an argument over something that they don't get ultimately is like this person and probably we could all put our hands up and go yep i've done that before (laughs) i've been in the position where i've tried to upstage myself and get them down there remembering how low they are and how they didn't get it together how they didn't sort it out Um, and what i'm not suggesting here is that it means that there's no standards or better ways of doing things right clearly there was a better way of doing what the disciples did and jesus came and showed them that way but what the scribes did was just come and tear them down, all right? And what that did was squash their faith rather than actually build up their faith. So they keep going and uh, faithfully following the Lord's call on their lives. Um, so if you've been given the gift of uh, seeing the holes and, uh, and, and seeing better ways that things could be done, uh, what is a way that you can actually exercise that? <laughs> I'm not sure it's a gift, but you, you get what I'm saying? Like There are some people who are particularly attuned to uh, knowing... Uh, seeing, seeing how something could be done better. Uh, I, would, I would suggest that you would, before you go and do that, before you go and try to win, before you uh, exercise your envy and your pride, um, you would actually pull back and ask some questions. Who is this person? Do I even know the person? Do I know that their intentions are really, really good? And uh, they're faithfully trying to follow the Lord in all that they're doing. Um, and I'm about to tear that right down. I'm about to cut that person down. Uh, ask questions that, um, that would find out uh, what it, what's actually going on behind the story, behind the scene of this person acting, acting out their faith in this way. Um, and it's quite interesting to, see, to note that when uh, you get this criti- critical spirit, um, the motivation of envy and pride, it's, it's crazy to see how it impacts the relationships that end up being most precious. These guys were, ultimately, they were on the same team. Like the scribes knew God and was, were trying to follow God, albeit pretty terribly, um, were trying to follow God, as were the disciples. 
the disciples were following Jesus. And so you get people from the same team attacking people from the same team and destroying the team. <laughs> uh, it, it completely destroys the team. So maybe you find yourself as the critic um, in your own heart, particularly about the church or someone who's taking a risk to faithfully follow Jesus. Um, you might need to start asking some of these questions before you jump straight to criticism and finding the fault and finding what's wrong. Uh, you pull back and humbly take the position of coming side by side with the person. Um, and ultimately, the goal, I think, ultimately the goal would be to actually build their faith and build their courage to keep doing what they're doing. Because when someone's walking faithfully with the Lord and, and taking a risk to follow Jesus in what they're called to do, um, yes, there's going to be successes and failures, uh, but the last thing they need is a critic who's just going to come as an opponent and step up against them, particularly from their own team. All right? Um, so instead, finding a way to actually walk side by side with them or leaving it to the job of someone who's already walking side by side with them um, to, to back them and, uh, and help to build their faith. Does it mean you speak the truth? Of course. Uh, but that comes in deep relationship, in good relationship. Secondly, uh, and I'll hit this a little bit later, but uh, sometimes being, being, uh, acting on your faith means taking risks that could fail and, uh, and that do probably fail, as the disciples found out. Um, they were doing something here and it didn't work out the way that they thought it would work out. And no doubt they were already uh, feeling humiliated. Now they were publicly humiliated in front of a huge crowd, having this argument between them and the scribes. Um, and you can see they sort of come deflated to Jesus at the end and go, what happened? What, why, didn't, why didn't it happen, Jesus? What's going on? Um, and so my encouragement for you this morning is to keep going. And I hope that will actually come through as you, uh, as you keep growing in your faith. Hebrews 12.3 gives a really uh, nice, not a nice, but it gives a really hopeful um, position to be in. And it says to stop and consider him. Consider Jesus who endured the shame and the scorn and the hostility against himself so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. You know that the road you're traveling, if you're following Jesus and being faithful to his call, you know that the road you're traveling is a holy road because Jesus has gone before you and he made it through with great victory. Isn't that good news? That's absolutely good news. Spe specifically in a culture that seems to just be caving in on you with the, uh, the multiplicity of, um, of worldliness, I suppose, um, all around us, that we can keep walking faithfully through that. So how could you uh, aim to build others' faith and courage to follow God's lead even when they are seemingly unsuccessful? And who knows how long that period of unsuccessfulness is <laughs> in them following their faith, uh, particularly if they're a young Christian. Man, get beside them, get behind them and keep um, building that attitude of faith and courage to, to act on their faith. Second is this, the undulating faithful father. Um, undulating. Does anyone know what the word undulating means? Yeah, waves, right? <laughs> undulating and you sort of see this the undulating faith of this father because he comes and he's expecting the disciples are going to do something and and actually heal his son um but then that doesn't happen so no doubt you could not you could understand that his faith is going to drop pretty severely and then jesus comes along whoa yes like my hopes return my faith is back and jesus comes along and um the story in shoes. Before, before we do that, I want to stop and actually put yourselves in the, uh, in the position of this father. Put yourself in the position of this father. 
there's no doubt people you know or people even within the project that I know of who have had consistent trial, um, particularly uh, with, with their children. And you can understand really specifically where this father's at, right? He's like, I believe that there, something great could happen here, but nothing's happened and I'm exhausted. He's a loving dad. He just wants the good for his son. He doesn't want to see his son keep getting thrown into fire, keep getting injured uh, all over the place because of these convulsions, these fits that are going on. Then you can add to that the public shame of what's going on in the actual situation. I'll never forget, a, uh, there was a girl at high school, I was in about year 9 or 10, and um, this particular girl went into an epileptic fit. And it happened just at, it was like the end of an assembly or a lunchtime or something like that. And, uh, and I watched as it happened, and this girl was physically getting injured because of the way that she was um, being thrown about. And, and then I watched as other people started to snicker and laugh at what was going on. And you get a bit of that where the people, like there's a commotion, so people are like, what's going on? What's happening? What's happening? And it's almost like this becomes a spectacle, which is the last thing you want. Imagine being the dad standing there watching this happen and his son becomes the spectacle of the day. He's in a lot of pain. <laughs> He's in a desperate place, absolutely desperate place. And, uh, and Jesus has an incredible way of, uh, of moving that situation. So I'm hoping you, you enter into this story a little bit. Maybe you're in a, there's a part of your life that you're in a desperate place and that everything in you, you've tried every resource to deal with this situation, this issue, and, uh, and no resource has come good. Um, maybe you've been praying long and hard and you're losing some of your patience. You're just like, when is this going to end? When is this going to stop? Um, you understand what this dad's feeling right now. But so does Jesus, doesn't he? Because Jesus hasn't changed. Jesus' rebuke when he said, because this is after the dad has said, uh, I brought my my son to the disciples and he couldn't do anything. And Jesus' rebuke uh, comes after that. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Um, It actually helped the man to realize the problem here is not that I don't have power. Because later the man said, if you can, show compassion and help my son. So this man came to Jesus wanting his son to be healed. That was his end goal. Like That was really what he wanted in the end. But he actually got something f- completely different before his son was healed. Let's have a look at what that, what that is now. Jesus is saying the problem here is not that I don't have power. Because he says all things are possible for those who believe. This man had come to Jesus in a double-minded state, wanting Jesus' help, but having doubt that Jesus could actually do it and having exhausted all of his resources to try to get help. Notice his cry. He cried out, which is a sign of desperation, isn't it? It's a sign of lowliness, particularly as a man. Uh, it's a sign of lowliness to cry out in desperation for, for the good of his son. The man felt the implied rebuke in the Saviour's language and feeling grieved that he should be thought to be destitute of faith and feeling deeply for the welfare of his afflicted son, he wept. Nothing can be more touching or natural than this. An anxious father, distressed at the condition of his son, having applied to the disciples in vain, now coming to the Saviour and not having full confidence that he had the proper qualification to be aided, he wept. Any man would have wept in his condition, nor would the Saviour turn the weeping suppliant away. 
it's not like he was desperate. He got to a particular situation and uh, and he was at the end uh, and he just started weeping out of desperation. Jesus said, no, nah, you haven't made it, mate. Your, your faith's not there yet. <laughs> he did say, you faithless generation, but somehow that drew him closer. Somehow that that actually brought him close. And when he cried out, I believe, please help my unbelief. I agree. That It's weird. That is intriguing, isn't it? Um, we were at Ed Welsh on, Sun, on, uh, on Friday, and um, one of the things that he talked about is those moments where you see where somebody actually has a turn in the way that they think about something or a turn in their faith, and suddenly they can see clearly again. It's like the blinders have been taken off and, and they can see clearly just about anything or anything in their life um, in relation to God. And he said, he said, you should take your shoes off, go and kill the fatted calf and have a party. He said, because what you're standing on is holy ground. And you get a sense here in which where we're standing right now is holy ground with this man because suddenly his eyes have been opened and he suddenly believes but realizes his humanity and says, I still unbelieve. I still don't believe fully and I need help with that. And so maybe you've been in that situation. You have this sort of, I don't know, they're, they're two opposites, aren't they? Belief and unbelief. You can't sort of mix the two together, but they seem to be mixed together right here. I believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, the scribes couldn't do it. The scribes couldn't come to the position and say, help my unbelief. Because they had full belief, right? They had the full measure. Uh, and, and they sort of, they made sure by showing how well they kept the law and, uh, and, and did everything by the book. Um, <clears throat> this was perhaps, I think, one of the most incredible miracles within the story. Like you can sometimes get caught and see like this is the most amazing miracle here that the son was actually healed and that is an amazing miracle. And that should build our courage and build our faith. But an even consistently amazing miracle is that this man suddenly realized that he needed faith in Jesus. And most of all, he needed Jesus. Most of all, he needed Jesus. So what transformed his faith? I remember being in India. I went to India in 2003, which absolutely blew my mind. It was an insane trip. Um, I remember... Going on a, uh, on a, we're in the back of a four-wheel drive with Indians. I was surrounded by Indians and they were all yelling and laughing and yahoo and having a great old time. Um, I had no idea what the heck they were saying because I didn't speak Indian, obviously. Uh, and and uh, I was just in this place. It was about three quarters of the way through the trip and I was just tired and wrecked and faithless. I just was like, I just want this to end. <laughs> this is so stinging hard because we'd been through uh, some, some interesting stuff. We, uh, we get to this particular village and um, India is just like nothing you've seen before. In, it, like you're walking along or you're driving along and you see some dude just going to the toilet right there on the side of the road. Um, and you, step, uh, you literally step over human feces as you're walking through a village. Like it's just a really filthy place but a desperate place spiritually uh, for the gospel. So we get to this place and, uh, and we sing some tunes and we're drawing uh, all these people in to try and uh, get them in to hear the gospel. And, um, and this one lady comes who's a cripple and, and, um, and her family are there 
from what I remember, her family are there, and, and they, they come and they're just desperate for her to be healed. Obviously, there's a duplicity of gods uh, in, 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 in India, and they worship just heaps and heaps of gods. Um, yet, obviously, none of those gods had chosen to do anything with that particular situation. Um, and we, we prayed desperately for her healing and keenly for her healing in full faith that God could heal her. Um, and in that situation, he didn't, uh, which you feel a bit like the disciples. What did we do wrong? <laughs> we went back and we had a debrief back in the hotel room. And, um, and the, the first instinct of one of the team members was we didn't have enough faith. We should have had more faith. Like that, that would have made, it, made the lady get healed. And in my mind, I sort of stood there and was like, okay. So somehow there's this magical jar called faith and you have to fill it up to the right level before God decides to act. And somehow people get to this particular point of faith. I don't know how you get more faith as in, you know, you just, it's like you go and buy it or something and you get more faith and then you, then you get God to do what you want him to do. And, and so it's like the, the quantity of faith uh, is what's dependent upon God actually acting, which I don't think is what's going on here because this man had faith, but then he didn't have faith. So his quantity was a bit out, right? <laughs> if it was about quantity. So it wasn't about quantity. Uh, it wasn't about quality. Jesus didn't come to the man and said, you should have said these things. He didn't go to the disciples and say, you should have uh, said this particular prayer um, and then that would have actually changed them. He didn't um, talk about somehow this quality of faith. Um, he, he didn't say you should have spent more time in preparation. He didn't say like you, you should have been at church that few more times. Uh, he didn't say to the man, um, all things are possible when you have done these few extra things to actually get your faith in the right spot for me to do something. Uh, it wasn't any, any of these things. The miracle of this man's faith was not dependent on the quantity or the quality of his faith. It was rather about the power of the one who he was connected to by faith. Faith tethers you to the man Jesus Christ, whose great power and great strength and great ability is what's at work. So what's faith? The end of Matthew 17, which is the same story in Matthew, the end of that, that particular section, it says your faith has to be the size of a mustard seed. Talk about quantity, that's not much. <laughs> that's, a, that's a speck in your hand. That's not, it's not much faith. And so in, in that sense, you don't talk about how much faith do you have, right? Because it's, it can't be measured. Faith is what connects you to the man Jesus Christ. And in this situation, that seems to be what happened. The man suddenly realized, the father suddenly realized, I believe, help my unbelief. That word help brings him into a relationship with Christ that he'd never had before. He came to Christ saying, help my son, I want the miracle. And in the end, he's like, Jesus, help me, help my unbelief. Which is this beautiful uh, working out of faith. Jesus' statement that all things are possible for one who believes is meant to give courage to simply put faith in Christ, the master of full strength and power. What changed was his need of trust in Jesus' power. He came looking for a cure for his son and what he got was the gift of faith in Christ. He became bound to the great and powerful master by trust and received the cure for his son. That simple prayer, I believe, helped my unbelief. He didn't, 
It's yeah, simple, isn't it? He didn't come and sort of grovel at Jesus' feet. He didn't come and put on good words and, and good messages so that God would hear him. It was like, believe, but help me, because I'm unbelieving as well. What does it mean for us? Are there areas in your life where you feel like God has lost interest and indeed that God could not be at work? Maybe even that you've gone so far down a particular track that you're like, no, God couldn't touch that. That's like the shame that I have associated with that is is not shame that God could cover. That God wouldn't go that, God's mercy doesn't stretch that far. One of the great and wonderful mysteries about God is that no one can measure or search the depths of his mercy and grace. No person sitting in this room can say God's mercy goes only to here. And this man was like, it, it's like his faith was measured. It was like God's mercy had been measured and, uh, and he was at the end of God's mercy. And Jesus was like, no, nah, I'm just going to go a little bit further. So that my, show you that my mercy is faithful and abounding. In doing so, you coming, you coming to Jesus at whatever stage of your unbelief and beginning to believe that God is able, that God is able to act, that God is able to move, if nothing else except that you get God. That's a wonderful miracle. And that actually stirs faith. That actually stirs a strength in you that helps you to keep persevering in whatever trial it is that's going on around you. So what will he do when you come to him and, uh, and surrender in faith? Well, no one can really tell you that. And God is not a person who's going to tell you that either because that would take away faith. <laughs> that would sort of mean that it, it's, it means that you only act based on what you see and that's not what God's about. You act based on what you believe that God is able to do. Have you forgotten that you and your faith in Christ is a lifelong journey that surges through the rises and falls in your circumstance? 1 Peter 1.6 says this if you've got your bible you can open there it says this in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold pause here for a moment just pause and think that the faith that's been gifted to you by god is more precious than gold and it's more precious than the circumstances that surround. It's more precious than the culture that surrounds. And it's the very thing that God wants to cultivate in you. That he wants to grow in you. More precious than your health. More precious than whatever it is that's going on around you. And that's the thing that's actually going to last. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is so precious, infinitely more precious than gold. This father's faith is so precious, isn't it? Do you see that? Yeah, wonderful. That he now gets that he's with Jesus and Jesus is with him. John Piper puts it this way, faith reflects God's trustworthiness. It respects his power. It respects his strength. And it also shows his power. If you trust someone, you make them look really good. So see your faith in this light. Trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. 
Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. Wonderful, isn't it? That's what's going to last in the end. That's what's going to last in the end for every single person here who believes and puts their faith in Jesus. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Yet even gold will at last vanish with the whole of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. That's it. That's a wonderful end goal. That's a wonderful hope that God is going to not stop at this trial. Your faith is not done. It's being purified. It's actually going to end up being completely more beautiful and wonderful than you ever imagined. And it's going to shine like a light in this world, but on that last day. The rest of 1 Peter talks about the last day when Jesus comes. The faith that's in you that's been tested and tried and purified and made absolutely incredible is the thing that's going to be most praiseworthy about you. And there's going to be praise and honor because of your faith. So this thing of faith is something so precious and something so valuable that you can't lose sight of when there's particular circumstances going on around. And like the disciples who were beaten by the critics around and like the father who was at the end of his tether but now became tethered to Christ. The faithless faithful, number four. Sorry, number three. Jesus calls them out and is quite shockingly sharp. How long? Is this really a question of self-centered frustration as it would seem? Is he really annoyed that they aren't getting it? Or is he a faithful friend who is frustrated that his friends are not getting the most valuable gift? I've got the best gift for you and you're not getting it. And I really want you to get it. I don't want you to miss it. That's what Jesus is saying from, from what I'm seeing and what I'm understanding. Because that draws people near, right? That draws people into to what God's mercy is like. <clears throat> so what's his rebuke really about? There's something in this for all the people listening. For the scribes, it was, I came for the sick. So your greatest position is not to be at the top of the rank with all your religious order and all your laws in place. Your greatest position is to be at the bottom and to accept that you're a sick person who needs help and needs a good doctor. For the father, it's almost like he got it. I believe, but I unbelieve. Please help. He tethered to Jesus. And for the disciples, it it ended up coming through prayer. Funnily, Jesus doesn't give a formulaic prayer to cast out demons. Did you notice that? He didn't say, this one, this demon can only be cast out by prayer. And here's the prayer you need to pray. No, because the disciples got to a position in their ministry, obviously, where they'd untethered from, from Jesus. And, uh, and in, in doing so, they basically tried to carry out their call on their own. And so they'd they'd lost faith. They'd lost the connection to Christ that actually gave them the power to do what they needed to do, to cast out demons and to heal people. And so why does Jesus not give a formulaic prayer that was going to cast out this demon? Why does Jesus not give a formulaic prayer to help you sort out the exact details of your life? I think he doesn't give a formulaic prayer because prayer is mostly about a position, 
not about getting the thing that you're praying for. The prayer of the man who was on the temple steps and all the Pharisees walked past him uh, who beat his chest and, uh, and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a prayer of position, isn't it? It's a lowly prayer that puts himself in the right position before God. I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. There's no other way out of this. I can't be resourceful. I can't get myself better. I can't make myself better. The only other way is by bowing my knee, beating my chest and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am the sick and I need the great doctor, Jesus. That ought to be the position of every Christian every day of their life. I'm the sick and I need the great doctor. I'm the sinner and I need Jesus. And what better place to be in because that's where God's power is most powerfully at work in his people. It's actually in the weakest and lowliest position. Peter Kreeft says it in his book called Prayer for Beginners. I I would recommend this book and um, it's funny how you're a Christian for however long you're a Christian and you go and read a book like this, Prayer for Beginners. (laughs) Uh, Because sometimes you can, prayer can just end up being this, I don't know, uh, it can just end up being a a lost entity uh, as you walk out your faith. And there's something just so simple and profound about it. He says this, We pray to obey God, not to play God. We pray not to change God's mind, but to change our own. We pray not to command God, but to let God command us. We pray to let God be God. The question ought not to be what prayer does to God, but what prayer does in us. He keeps going later and he says, In order to get the awareness of God's presence... Because that's ultimately what it is, isn't it? It's like when you're walking through life and every person who walks out their faith in Christ uh, must walk out their faith in the changing of nappies, in the going to work, in the relating to your family who are really painful, in the, you know, like the everyday spread of life. This is where faith gets walked out, right? And so in order to actually have faith activated, you need to stop and become aware of God. And that he's present in your job. And that he's present in your family. And that he's present in changing nappies. He's present in it all. In order to get the awareness of God's presence, we must first want it and seek it and be willing to sacrifice for it. The mind will stop, look and listen only when it's commanded to do so by the will. We will not listen to God if we do not look at God. And we will not look at him unless we stop looking elsewhere. And we will not stop looking elsewhere without a deliberate choice of the will. So it's in prayer that we are human and we need a person, not a thing. The most wonderful thing that this man got was Jesus himself. And the healing of his son was just a wonderful added extra, right? The most wonderful things the scribes could get is Jesus himself. Not the keeping of all their laws and rules and regulations. The most wonderful things the disciples needed was Jesus himself and his power, not their own. The deepest need, says Ed Wells, the deepest need of the human heart is to know the one that we worship. I'd like to finish with a story and, um, and then we'll pray together. The, at the start of this year, I found myself in an incredible position of... Um, I've just, it's been about six months of just being gripped by fear um, and to the point where I've been physically painful. 
like, like I've had physical pain because of this fear that's just gripped me. Um, and part of, part of the year has been doing a bit of study, and part of that study was that the course said, you can't do this course without being mentored by somebody. And I racked my brain. I was like, who do I actually trust to let into my pain and let into what's going on in my life right now um, that, that I want to actually speak into my life? And I realized that I'd isolated myself pretty severely um, in my faith. And um, I mean, even though I'm, I'm part of church and even though I'm sharing life in community, um, there's a part of me that was just isolated. Um, and, and so... This, this, this part of me that I'd isolated was forced out uh, in this relationship with the mentor. Um, it was Riley Sondergeld, uh, Pete's dad, who was my uh, old pastor. He's retired now, but continues to uh, just invest in my life. Um, and so I went back to him and I started meeting up with him and I'd spill on just everything that was going on, all the anxieties that I was feeling, the, the tension that was going on um, in my own life uh, internally. And I sort of was going expecting that he'd give me answers and, and he'd give me uh, like the, uh, I don't know, the quick fixes, the things that would help me in all these different areas. And what I actually walked away from most of these uh, times with him were uh, he actually gave me God. He didn't, he didn't try to fix all these different problems. Um, there may have been a time for that and, and he did speak wisdom into it. But ultimately I walked away with a, just a different picture of God. And so what I needed was not all my problems fixed. What I needed was God. And in this particular circumstance, he just kept reminding me that God is good and he's good right now and his goodness is going to cover over that shame and his goodness is going to cover that fear and give you courage to keep walking faithfully in your call as a son of God. That was, a, that was incredible. And it's almost... It's almost the same here. Uh, what joins you to the one you worship? It's faith. What activates your faith? It's prayer. I've been thinking about prayer. It's like the lifeblood of faith. It's like the thing that really brings faith alive is an active, ongoing communication with God the Father. So it's almost like a... I read a book a while ago called The Practice of the Presence of God. Um, which has very similar tones to Peter Kreef's book um, the, uh, on prayer. And it's, it's so simple, but yet so profound in the outgoing, ongoing, day by day, walking out of your faith, this daily communication with God. Stopping to pray as this father did in the simplest of ways. One prayer that in particular has been so simple yet just continued as I've cried out to God as being, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I did not want to see myself as a sinner. I wanted to see myself as mostly good with a few bad sins that I commit sometimes. Uh, but what's transformed that is I've come to this position where I'm like, that's me. I can honestly face that now, <laughs> knowing that God's a faithful God and he's a merciful God whose mercy knows no limit. <clears throat> My only response is to come and humility. You don't stop at anything thinking that it, that thing, whatever the thing you've stopped believing about or you are too far gone for God to act. So act in your faith, in the simplicity of your faith. Today, this week, uh, in prayer, which will continue to grow your faith 
and extend your faith so that you can do things you never thought you could do. So that you can be more fully and more human than you've ever been. Tethered to the most powerful one, Jesus himself.